From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. Over the coming weeks, kids will be heading back to school, over a million of them, to preschool. And while many of these preschoolers will learn about colors, shapes, and the ABCs, thousands will learn what it's like to be suspended for the first time. On average, 250 preschoolers are suspended each day of the school year. Compared with K-12 students, preschoolers are suspended at nearly three times the frequency of older students. Our guest today has spent decades raising awareness about this trend and its effect on a child's long-term outcomes. Dr. Rosemary Allen is an associate professor at the School of Education at Metropolitan State University of Denver, where she teaches students about power, privilege, and the education system. She joins us today to discuss the preschool-to-prison pipeline, the punitive culture in education spaces, and alternative approaches that teach rather than punish. Dr. Allen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Molly. I am very excited to be here. You know, many of us, I think, have heard of the school-to-prison pipeline, where students, predominantly children of color, are funneled out of schools and into the criminal legal system. But you've studied how that pipeline can start as early as preschool. Can you walk us through what this looks like and how a child's punishment in preschool can impact them far beyond preschool? You know, it's really interesting. We went from school to prison pipeline to the preschool to prison pipeline. But, you know, that entryway into the school to prison pipeline actually starts before children are out of the crib. We're finding that children as young as eight months old begin to be suspended and expelled from their child care programs, usually for doing typical things that babies do, like crying or biting. Starts about eight months of age. And as you said, preschool children are three times more likely than K-12 children to be suspended or expelled. So a young child can actually be suspended from their child care program as infants, be suspended again at two, usually for throwing tantrums. By three years old, they can be kicked out of another early childhood program for maybe being boisterous. You know, people warn you about terrible twos, but they don't warn you about three-year-olds and they are exuberant and like twos on steroids. And by the time a child is four, they may be kicked out for fighting or biting or whatever it is that children do. So by the time they reach kindergarten, children can possibly be kicked out of three or four early childhood programs because one of the biggest indicators for being suspended is having been suspended before. That places them at greater risk. So by the time they get to a K-12 program, they've already, already experienced so many suspensions that they feel that school is not a safe or welcoming place for them. And of course, then they're more and more likely to be suspended and referred to law enforcement, which is where that school to prison pipeline actually begins. How prevalent is the problem? And does it exist in more places? Is it a worse problem in some places more than others? Um, what we're finding is that the national data is pretty much spread equally across all states um, where young children are being suspended. We do know that there's disparities in who's being suspended or not. First, we know that there are disparities, gender disparities. Boys are suspended, they're suspended a lot. 
They're usually about 70% of the preschool male population, but their suspension rates far exceed their, um, their presence in the population. Children of color, especially black children, they're only 19% of the preschool population, but they are 48% of those who are suspended. So we know there's disparities there. An up and coming trend that's very concerning to me are little black girls who make up only 20% of the female preschool population, but they're 54% of those who are suspended from preschool. So basically the national data is exhibited in all states, but the disparities are in gender and race. How does disability factor in here? Like a a child that has a sensory disorder or ADHD or autism, how does that play a role? I love that you said that. One of the reasons I love it is because I myself have sensory integration processing disorder, and so does my son. Now, the data shows that children with disabilities are not disproportionately suspended from preschool. However, you brought up an excellent point. Those children are those who already have diagnoses. However, we know that children with sensory integration processing disorder, ADHD, if they're on the autism spectrum and have not been been diagnosed, very frequently their disability is seen as misbehavior. Do you know that by the time a parent of a Black child begins to express concern that their child might be on the autism spectrum, they do not receive services for on average of seven years. So someone said, well, what happens to Black children with autism? And I said, they don't get treated, they get suspended because the behavior is attributed to misbehavior rather than their disability. So the data doesn't show that there's this disparate treatment of children with disabilities, but we know many who are not diagnosed are thought to be misbehaving and it takes them longer to be diagnosed. Can you Walk us through what this looks like for the child. So let's say you have an undiagnosed disorder that is not getting treated and you are in a preschool setting. What are you experiencing? Like, why is the reaction, I'm going to bite or I'm going to push or whatever the, the behavior is that's getting this attention? I think adults see it one way as disruptive and harmful to maybe the safety of the other students. But how is that child experiencing it? Let's let's create a pretend child. Let's call this child Hunter. So Hunter has sensory integration processing issues. So Hunter cannot stand the feeling of a tag in the back of his shirt. Um, For most of us, we don't even notice, but with a child who has a sensory disorder, that tag is almost like slicing through their skin every few seconds. So now Hunter is moving. He's supposed to be still, but he's moving around and now he's getting in trouble for moving. So, all right, so parents and teachers realize, okay, this tag is a problem. So now they get tagless t-shirts. But now another part of a sensory issue um, is that some students seek sensory input and they need to center themselves in order to, to, to feel their bodies. I hope this is making sense. So they need something. If this child is undiagnosed and they're seeking sensory input to feel their bodies, if they're in circle time, they may bump into other children constantly. 
So just imagine three and four-year-olds and Hunter's bumping and Hunter bumps into Kiara and Kiara says, Hunter, stop and pushes him. And Hunter loves that because he's getting the sensory input. And he goes, oh, I need that again. So he does it again. And this time he's in trouble. And the teacher may think that they're being defiant, that they're being belligerent, that they're trying to hurt other children. The same thing happens when children are expected to stand in line. So here's Hunter. He's between two people, but he needs to center his body and its space. So he may intentionally bump into the child in front of them. And the teacher may think that that's an act of aggression. Also, children with sensory integration processing disorder, they're very sensitive to sounds. So if you have a very noisy classroom and you have children with a marching band over here and someone's reading a story over there and a toilet is flushing over here and you have a, a spill and you're vacuuming over there, that could send Hunter into sensory overload. So he may stand in the middle of the classroom, cover his ears and start screaming and now be labeled disruptive. So within a day or within a week, he's squirming because the tag is cutting him. So by the time Hunter has squirmed, pushed a child to circle time, ran into a child in line, stood in the middle of the room screaming, has put the teacher now on overload as well. And teachers are there, and I just have to give kudos to teachers, they are there to make a difference and to enhance children's lives. And they may not have the tools nor the support that they need to handle Hunter in the classroom doing that every single day. And that's where suspensions and exclusion and expulsions come in. The teacher is now teaching the other children that Hunter is a problem. So Hunter stop, Hunter don't, Hunter sit down, Hunter, be still. Hunter, stop screaming. Hunter, don't hurt your friends. So now Hunter is labeled the troublemaker. So all the other children begin to treat Hunter like the troublemaker, and it becomes harder for Hunter to interact positively with the peers. And Hunter starts to think probably himself that I am a troublemaker. Like, I guess that, that is who I am. Absolutely, he does. Absolutely. And then Hunter disappears. So now the children in Hunter's classroom have learned that children who misbehave are dispensable. They get to go away. But this is where the problem is. Hunter is only four. So unlike K through 12, or let's just say middle school and high school students who are suspended, parents have to take off work or they have to have alternate care. So now all of a sudden, these suspensions may be creating tension in the family because many parents who have to, their children in early childhood programs, especially childcare and preschool, they do so because they have to work. So now they have to take off work in order to stay at home with Hunter for two or three days. And just to state the obvious about that, that if you don't have the money or you're in a job where you cannot take off that work, this becomes an exponential stress. Absolutely. So no, the child doesn't disappear. If the family can't take off work, they also may be forced to put them in undesirable care where the child is not quite as safe because they don't have other opportunities or other alternatives. And also the child has learned that they too are dispensable, that they are unwanted, 
And studies tell us time and time again, suspensions do not work in changing children's behavior. Well, because they haven't learned an alternative, right? Like we they just said, learned. you are you are dispensable. And and I think a point that I've heard you made before is that when a child can't read, we teach them. When a yes. child has, you know, when it presents as something that is a learning opportunity, we often teach. But when it comes to behavioral issues, we punish. We punish. And Hunter especially Hunter, because he has a sensory issue. He doesn't understand why he's in trouble and he doesn't understand. So he's not been taught. No one investigated why Hunter is squirming, why he's taking his shoes off, why he's bumping into his friend, because there are alternatives. Hunter, tell me what you feel when you're bumping. Why are you bumping? And then perhaps during those times is to seat Hunter by a wall so that he can get the same sensory input by the wall. I want to come back for a moment to the issue around race. I had read this study, this 2016 Walter Gilliam study that observed teachers um, mm -hmm. and how they watched and and sort of observed behavior of students of, of all different races. And what the study found, as I understood it, is whether the teacher was white or black or any other race, that all the teachers seemed to watch black students more. And I think that the sort of conclusion was that the child you are watching more, you are more likely to see things that may not comport. Um, what do you know about implicit bias of teachers and what they're bringing to the evaluation? Because I think in an ideal scenario, you know, a child is coming in with a diagnosis. Everyone knows that this diagnosis requires this solution. But if, if a school is under-resourced, if a teacher is under-resourced and that teacher is paying more attention to Black students, what kind of outcomes can we expect? Well, you find behavior in the place where you're looking for it. Um, Walter Gilliam is a very good friend of mine. We've had these discussions of most of my work is centered on implicit bias in early childhood. First, I want to say we're all biased, all of us. It's not something we ask for. It's not something we want. We have been receiving biased messages from the time we were born. And I'd like to explain that if you were to imagine your core area as an inner recorder, every message you've ever received is recorded there. The problem is that we don't know what's recorded. So whether you're black or white or anywhere along the spectrum, we're all receiving the same messages. And because we're all biased is why we see that black teachers and white teachers are also looking at little black boys. It's the same way when you look at police shootings. Police officers shoot and kill black men, black officers as well as white officers. So, and this is because we're all biased. We're all receiving the same information. I have to tell you, Molly, I have caught myself being biased. I always tell people that aware is halfway there because these biases are usually beyond our conscious knowing. So we have to really dig deeply. So Dr. Gilliam's study showed, and it's an amazing study, he had early childhood professionals at an early childhood conference watch video clips of four children, a white girl, white boy, black boy, black girl. And what the participants didn't know was that these children were all child actors. And there were no misbehaviors. There were no behaviors or challenging behaviors in the video clips at all. But they were asked to watch the video clips to anticipate challenging behaviors. 
participants also didn't know that eye tracking devices were being used so that the researchers could track what child was being watched. And again, as you said, the black boy was watched more than any other child. And what's shocking is that 42% of those teachers said he required more of their attention. Wow. Just heartbreaking. So if you're always looking to the black children for misbehaviors, you'll always find it there. I was observing a classroom. I observe classrooms very often in my, in my work. And I saw this in real life, in real time but it was with a little black girl. And the teacher kept looking for this little black girl. She was being observed. I got the feeling that the little black girl was the troublemaker. So she wanted to make sure she was anticipating the behavior so her observation would be a good one. But what she didn't see was that the two little white guys next to her were so mischievous, doing all the things that she missed while she was so focused on the little black girl. So that's how that plays out. You look for the behavior, you see it where you're looking, and you're not seeing the misbehavior of all the other children. And that's what leads to disparities. Am I thinking of the same study? Did, did this study also show that when given more context about the home background, that there this is the area where the color of the teacher's skin did make a difference, that black teachers tended to be more sympathetic and white teachers tended to be less sympathetic. Is am I getting the study right? This is exactly the same study. Yes. And that was that was really, really interesting because you would think if the teacher found out that this child had suffered from trauma had some issues at home that they would be more sympathetic about the behavior. And that did prove true for Black teachers with Black children, but not true with white teachers. There are studies that show that if a child has at least one, one same race teacher, their outcomes are improved tremendously. Imagine if they had more than one. Even in my same household, my, my husband grew up in the segregated South and all of his teachers were Black. And he speaks so fondly of his teachers, even those who were very hard on him, because he knew that they had a vested interest in their success. Now, I'm a recipient of Brown versus Board of Education. So while my school was not integrated in terms of the student body, white teachers came to teach us. And I did not have that experience at all. I did not feel that my teachers cared if I learned or not. I did not feel that the teachers had a vested interest in my success. I felt that my teachers expected the worst, had very regimented rules because they thought we were out of line. So the rules were there to keep us straight. And any variance, if any time you even broke a rule, I was suspended for getting out of my chair to get a pencil that dropped on the floor once. What was I the mean, effect of that? Oh, you know, um, well, I don't know if you've seen my TED talk at all, Molly, and I, and I talk about it. I was suspended multiple times from the time I entered school in kindergarten. I was actually expelled from three schools. And when you ask me what the impact is, I'll tell you, I was working on my doctorate, found the seminal study of white teachers' interactions with Black students following Brown versus Board of Education. And there was one paragraph that absolutely broke my heart. Of course, it talked about how Black children were 
complimented less, criticized more, harsh treatment. But then there was a sentence that said, little Black girls who were smart were treated worse than anyone. I have to tell you that it was two o'clock in the morning when I was reading this article, and it brought me to my knees because my whole life, I thought I was bad. I thought I was a bad little girl. And at two o'clock in the morning, reading that sentence, it hit me that it wasn't me. And my dad, who had passed away 10 years earlier, all I wanted to do was call him. I wanted to call him and say, Daddy, it wasn't me. I wasn't a horrible, terrible, bad little girl, but it had everything to do with how the teachers treated me. And it was at that moment, as an adult in my 50s, that I began to see myself as something other than a bad little girl who deserved to be treated that way. So when you talk about the impact, I had 50 years of it where I didn't see myself as a good person. I saw myself as a smart person because I knew I was really smart, but I also knew during that time that I was really bad. What happened when teachers would call home? What, what, how did your parents respond? That was my saving grace. Um, that was my saving grace because my dad always told me that I was smart and I was good and I was misunderstood. And that's where cultural disconnects came from. I remember we were taught to be exuberant and talkative and a lot of call and response in our home. We would be tested at home, like for our multiplication, there's eight children. So my dad might say, what's eight times four? And whoever got it out the fastest was it. Spelling words. I mean, it was just exuberant and lively. So when I went to school, that's that's what I expected. So when the teacher would ask questions, I would just be the first to answer out loud. And it may have looked impulsive and out of control and disruptive. So when they call and say she keeps disrupting, she keeps yelling out answers, she keeps doing this. When I would get home, my daddy would say there's nothing wrong. And I think that's why I was able to be successful. And I remember one time I got suspended. Uh, this was the time when I got out of my seat for the pencil, right before it was a test. And right before the test, the teacher walked over to me and said, Rosemary, I'm warning you. If you get out of your seat for any reason, any reason whatsoever, you're gonna be sent to the office. I don't care what it is. So anyway, there's a lot more to that story. But anyway, I, I did get out of my seat. I did get suspended. And my dad came to the school. And he would also always ask to talk to me first because he'd say, did you do this? And sometimes it was things I shouldn't have been doing. And I'd say yes, and I'd explain. He said, did you get out of your seat? I said, yes, I got out to get my pencil. He said, did you drop the pencil or did you throw the pencil? Did you need to get out of your seat? And I said, daddy, I needed to get out of my seat. But she did tell me if I got out, I was going to go to the principal's office. He said, when did she tell you that? I said, before the test. When we went in to meet with the principal and the teacher, he didn't have the education to say, what was the antecedent to the behavior? But what he asked was, how did we get here? And the teacher said, well, I told her before the test that she, if she got out of her seat, he said, but we agreed that you would always have an alternate activity for her because you knew she was gonna finish. You knew she was gonna finish early. And we agreed that you would always have something for her to do 
when she finished early. So what I'm hearing is that you knew she was going to be finished early and you knew she was going to get out of her seat. So you set this situation up because you failed to adhere to the agreed upon plan. So at home, I was supported when I was right. I was disciplined when I was wrong. There were some things I did wrong because after a while, after this treatment, every single year you get resentful. And I was resentful and I had a mouth and I had a vocabulary and I knew how to use it. (laughs) I exercised my agency in defending myself in ways that sometimes weren't appropriate as I got older. And I was disciplined for that at home. But when it wasn't warranted, I was heavily supported. You know, a theme that seems to keep coming up is is this idea of safety. You know, safety for the teacher, for other students, but also safety for the student, him or herself. You know, they they don't feel safe when they keep getting attacked or or they keep getting punished or expelled from school after school. You know, and then you know the, it's the preschool to prison pipeline. So then safety becomes another issue. You know, safety in the society. How you know, and you talked about bias. You know, like how. We all have responses around our safety. And and I'm wondering how much of a solution can we find by reconsidering how we think about safety? Absolutely. And I think we're seeing that in a lot of the trauma-informed practices that are being implemented and the healing-centered practices. So I think we're beginning to look at the fact that children must feel safe physically, psychologically, emotionally, and even spiritually in our classroom. My push, especially for teachers who may be listening to this, is when we talk about trauma, is not to always look at the child, family, and community, but also be aware of the fact that school is the source of trauma for many children of color. So we have to decrease the trauma and trauma triggers in our own classroom to ensure our children are safe. What kind of programs or what solutions have you seen, if any, that seem to actually be working? We have to go back to implicit bias and helping teachers recognize that everyone is biased. And because of the negative messages we receive about the BIPOC community or even children with disabilities, it shapes the way we view them and going through those steps I talked about. But then next we have to say, okay, not only am I biased, but I show up with my own cultural lens. And it's my cultural lens through which I'm viewing all of my students from my perspective. So here I am, an exuberant, lively child who yells out answers and seem to have no impulse control. When you may come from a culture where children actually sit and raise their hands and there's no culture, no call and response and things like that. So checking your own cultural lens. And unfortunately, White people have rarely ever had to do that because whiteness has been so normalized and white culture so normalized that this is normal without culture and everything else is othered. So seeing yourself, especially as a white person, when you see yourself as a cultural being and then you see everyone else around you as a cultural being, it helps you to open your perspective and expectations for others. And then to understand that we all come with our own story. So now you really work hard to develop a positive 
inter, um, relationship with every single child. And when we develop a positive relationship with every child, they feel honored, valued, and seen. I have observed classrooms where there are some children who are never spoken to the entire day. When I pointed out to teachers, they are in absolute shock and usually in tears because their intention is not to ignore some children, but the reality is that it happens and it happens every day. So what I'm understanding is that a lot of what needs to be done is not training the student who is seen as the cause of the problem, but actually giving teachers more training, more attention themselves so that they can have help seeing where they're, where they're missing things, where they um, might be bringing their own triggers to play. You know, Molly, it's very rare that you see a whole new behavior in a classroom that you've never seen before. Rare. The longer you teach, you see it's the same behaviors. You're going to have kickers, biters, screamers, spitters, cussers, chair throwers, tantrum throwers. Every year, you see this behavior. I ask teachers all the time, why are you surprised? <laughs> because children are going to be children. Why would we expect a two-year-old to be in control of their emotions when a 20 and 30 and 40-year-old is not? By three, they have more words, but the feelings... Have you ever seen a three-year-old meltdown? They have no idea what to do but fling themselves. Think about yourself. When was the last time you were crying mad? And imagine someone coming over to you saying you need to calm down. And you're a grown-up. So yes, we have to shift the focus from typical behaviors of children. And as you said earlier, is to teach them. A two-year-old must go through the tantrum-throwing stage. That's what they must do in order to learn self-regulation. But we don't have to join them there. Why must we tantrum when they tantrum? We have to be the adult. We have to model the behavior. We have to teach them. We have to get over being mad. See, we don't talk about this. We get mad at children and we stay mad a long time. We have to be the grown-up, shift the attention from trying to fix a child who's only being a child to how you will respond to that behavior and really help the child through it. You know, there's this potential historic infusion of $225 billion to the childcare industry through President Joe Biden's proposed American Families Plan, and it could take mental health consultation from an added service in some states to a fundamental piece of the childcare infrastructure across the country. I'm wondering, you know, what does this mean for the future of early childcare and education? And, and does it give you hope? Yes, it does. It gives me lots of hope. As a matter of fact, here in Colorado, um, my nonprofit, the Institute for Racial Equity and Excellence, we provide mental health services. We not only provide mental health services for children, for teachers who are having um, difficulty addressing challenging behaviors, but we provide anti-bias, anti-racist services to mental health consultants. Because while this is very promising, and again, based on Dr. Gilliam's study that shows it makes a difference, not only are we going to be providing mental health consultation services, but we're going to also be providing those services to the workforce because they are the most underpaid, overstressed, overworked in all of education. And 
What we have to understand is that none of this will work. No evidence-based practices work if you do not address the lens through which it's implemented, which is addressing implicit bias, addressing cultural disconnects, and addressing anti-racist, anti-bias practices. So those things together show great promise for really addressing and supporting and uplifting children and adults who are in this field. And Dr. Helen, before um, we part, I was wondering, you know, if I'm a parent or a teacher, an educator, and I need more resources, are there any in particular that you would highlight to a teacher or a parent who really wants to learn more or, or needs, you know, help? One of the greatest reports that have come out in the last year, year and a half, has been the Start with Equity report by the Children's Equity Project out of the University of Arizona. It's a great place to start. I think any videos that you can watch, Dr. Walter Gilliam would be amazing. Videos of Dr. Bettina Love. I'll even put in a plug for my own TED Talk, Suspensions are an Adult Behavior. And to really begin to read more books on implicit bias, um, there's a book by Dr. Ioma Iruka. I was going to try to grab it really fast and bring it called Don't Look Away. And it talks about daily acts of bias in early childhood classrooms and how to address and avoid them. So there are tons of resources out there. Even if you Google early childhood suspensions and expulsions, you'll find a plethora of, of, of resources and readings and books and videos. Well, Dr. Allen, thank you so much for joining us. I, I wish you a wonderful start to the new school year and, and whatever that, that will mean for you. And, and thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you so much for having me. And also thank you for taking the time to highlight this really, really, really important phenomenon that's taking place in our early childhood programs. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to take action on the school to prison pipeline, check out aclu.org backslash action, where we have a draft letter from you to Congress asking for more supportive resources for students and fewer school police. And as always, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcast and rate and review the show. We always appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.